Hey, story fans, Chris here to ask for your help. I'm sure all you regular listeners have immediately assumed I'm going to ask you for an iTunes review. Well, it is true that we are thankful for every review we get, and I do need to especially thank Mike Wiskoski, Jamie's Rabbits, E.G. Jones, Cliff Fon, and C.C. Marty for their recent reviews, and you can leave your own review just by going to arcstories.com slash iTunes, but that's not the help we're asking for right now. We are currently taking a survey of our listeners. It's going to help us learn more about you and what you think of the show, which will then in turn help us to make this podcast even better. It's just 10 questions long, and it will only take you a few minutes to complete. You can do it right now simply by visiting arcstories.com survey. You're going to hear me talk about this survey for the next few episodes, but don't wait. Go ahead and take it. And if you provide us your email when you do, we'll enter you into a drawing for a $25 Amazon gift card. So go on and take it right now. You can keep listening to the show while you do it. Just go to arcstories.com slash survey. All right, let's get to it. Welcome to the Arc Stories Podcast. So there I was, standing in front of a group of strangers attending a football game, being cursed out about Doritos. A minute or two later, Taylor Swift comes out, and she, like, smiles at All-American Nashville smile, and she, she introduces herself. She shakes my hand. Hey, I'm Taylor. Hey, I'm the groom. We're bringing you true personal stories told in the Southern tradition and recorded in front of a live audience. I caught just enough of the video to see a very large man making this slow walk toward a van, wearing absolutely nothing but his underwear and coated in grease. And I'm going to stop right there, and the rest of it is history. I'm your host, Chris Kinsley. For much of the history of humanity, a person's mantle could be measured by how well they fared in their encounters with nature. Of course, for much of our history, we had no choice but to wrestle with and against nature for our very existence. But for many of us modern men and women, we have things a bit easier. Still, that doesn't mean we never encounter moments in our lives when we are faced with the opportunity to see how we, too, would measure up against the wilds of our world. Well, today we are bringing you two such stories where our tellers encounter, confront, and attempt to overcome some aspects of nature that could be considered wild to varying degrees. Their degrees of success are also rather varied. This first story comes from an event we hosted back in October of last year where our theme was Spooked, stories that go bump in the night. Here's storyteller Leonard Lee Smith. I was 20-something. It was spring, and I was mowing the grass at my Granny Ruby's house in the country. It was an acre and a half lawn and done with a 20-year-old four-horsepower mower from Sears. It was no small chore. In the midst of all the yard work, a dog turned up. She was a seven-month-old chocolate brown lab mix with four white feet that made her look like she was wearing tennis shoes. 
She was sweet. She rolled over on her back. She wagged her tail when I rubbed her belly. She had soulful golden eyes. I was in love. I went inside to get her some table scraps. She was a happy dog, happy tail wagging dog that was homeless and had found human help. When I went into the kitchen to get some table scraps and my grandmother discovered what I was doing, she flashed to anger and took the scraps from my hand and said, don't you feed that dog. I don't want no stray dogs around here. Ain't no telling what kind of diseases that animal has. Now you go out and run it off and scare it good so it stays gone. I pleaded the dog's case. Granny, that's a sweet dog and she's got good manners and a gentle disposition. She'd be a great dog for somebody. I can't take her back to Montgomery to my apartment. Dogs aren't allowed, but I was thinking she'd make a good dog for you. You haven't had a dog in a while and she'd be good company. Granny frowned. I ain't looking for a dog. Now you run that flea-bitten thing off from here. We've been having too much trouble with strays and I ain't encouraging that one to stay. I went back outside and knelt down with my new canine friend and said, hey girl, things aren't looking good, but stick around. I'll see what I can do. I um, found some stale french fries and peanuts in the fast food container graveyard that had sprung up in the passenger seat floorboard of my car. The dog hung around while I mowed the front yard and she watched me through the chain link fence as I mowed the back. Granny Ruby came out several times and shooed her off with a broom, but she never retreated very far and always came back when Granny went in the house. <laughs> I was at the back of the house putting all the things away and I heard an awful racket. I went around the side of the house to see what was going on and there was Granny Ruby standing on the driveway, banging a large metal spoon against a stock pot, screaming, go on, get out of here. And the dog was running, her tail tucked under her across the front lawn, leaving a plume of grass clippings as she headed for the road with amazing speed on her long legs. I was red with anger. I had decided over the course of the afternoon to take the dog back home with me, and if I could not keep it, find someone who could, even if it meant a clandestine night stay in my apartment. Granny Ruby and I ate a supper of chicken and dumplings without much conversation, both disappointed in the other. It was dark when I left. I went out to the car after hugging and kissing Granny loaded down with leftovers. And at the end of the driveway, I stopped and poured some of the chicken and dumplings on the ground. It had been five months since I had seen the dog. I looked for her every time I came that summer to do yard work, but she never turned up again. It was late September and I looked for her one last time as I came down Granny's driveway that day, knowing that it was really too late to keep looking and she was probably a lost cause. I found Granny Ruby in the kitchen basting a roast that was to be our supper. And after a hug and a kiss hello, she said, I packed the trash too tight for me to lift. Would you take it out to Burdett's? Of course, I said. Gladys Burdett was Granny Ruby's next door neighbor. She was also a widow. Neither of them produced enough trash to fill the large wheeled container provided by the county waste removal service. So Granny canceled her service and put her trash in Gladys's container, and at the end of every month, they split the trash bill. 
I grabbed the trash bag and headed across the backyard to the side gate that led on to the Burdette property. I had to cross the whole length of the unfenced Burdette lot to reach the container. Halfway across the lot, I passed an old storage shed. Gladys was feeble now and didn't do much gardening and the storage shed had fallen into disrepair and I noticed an animal had dug an entrance hole to the space beneath it. As I was coming back from the container, I noticed movement under the storage shed and the chocolate brown lab with the four white feet I had been looking to find squeezed out of the hole. I knelt down and said, hey girl, I've been looking for you, hoping the dog would come to me. She did head in my direction, but I noticed very quickly that something was not right. She had a lopsided gait as if she might have been injured. Her tail wasn't wagging. She had deep, wet, weeping tracks under her eyes, and her eyes seemed glazed. She seemed to come, become aware of me, and she froze. She leaned forward, put all of her weight on her shoulders, lowered her head level with her body, and began a savage growl. Hey girl, it's easy, you know me. My reassuring words had no effect. The dog continued to growl and began to move toward me, adding deep barks to the growling. Dogs have a vocabulary of barks and I had not heard this one often, but I knew its meaning. It said, when I reach you, I will rip you to shreds. I stood up and began moving slowly backwards. The dog continued moving toward me and I noticed that she was drooling heavily. I noticed that when I stopped, the dog stopped. Her vision seemed to be affected and I think she saw movement more than she saw me. I noticed that from all of the barking, there was a white froth around her mouth and I realized with terror that she was rabid. I stood still for 30 or 40 seconds. The dog became distracted and began chomping at the air and maneuvering her jaw as if her mouth bothered her. I moved slowly sideways, trying to get in behind a cluster of water oaks and azaleas. As I got in behind the trees, my feet made noise on the dried leaves and twigs, and the dog began to growl at me again. We were staring at each other, but I could tell she could not distinguish me from the tree trunks. Her vision was definitely impaired. I could tell that her sense of hearing was working fine, and I figured so was her sense of smell. I looked at the leaves on the tree. I was downwind. I was good as long as the wind didn't change. I contemplated what to do and decided to move toward Granny's gate in an arc keeping as many trees and hedges between me and the dog as possible. I stuck to the sandy parts of the ground so as to make no noise, but I was so busy avoiding dried leaves and twigs, I lost track of the dog. And when I looked up, she wasn't in the place where I had left her. I didn't know if she was tracking my movements and stalking me on the other side of the hedge, or if she'd retreated to the hole under the shed. I kept my head on a swivel in case she had followed my scent around the hedge and was coming up from another direction. 
not knowing where the dog was, was more frightening than having her in front of me growling. I made my way around and reached the last hedge. 25 yards of open ground lay between me and the gate. I took off running as fast as I could go for the gate and quickly realized it was a mistake. The dog must have been lying in the shade near where I had left her, and if I had moved quietly toward the gate, she might not have noticed me. But my running had sprung her aggression into action. I looked over my shoulder to the right to see she was coming at me from the direction of the storage shed. My adrenaline had kicked in, and it was that moment when everything slows down, and though I had only gotten a glance at her, I could tell she was running like a predator, back level, low to the ground, tail down for balance, incredibly long strides. Her speed was amazing, and she was closing fast. I was now running for my life, and I ran with everything I had. I felt as if I would throw up from the adrenaline. I hoped I could reach the gate before her, but even if I did, could I get through it and get the gate closed behind me? I couldn't go over the fence because the top of it was spiked, so I couldn't vault over. I couldn't go over the gate because of the filigree ornamentation on top of it. Everything slowed down. It felt as if I was running through jello. I remember hearing the whapping sounds of the seed heads on the tall grass that I was running through. I reached the gate and was through it. I turned and flung the U latch into place just as the dog reached the fence. I had expected her when she reached the fence to stop and jump on it and bark viciously. But her rabies ravaged brain was intent only on reaching me, her prey. She never broke stride. She hit the gate at full tilt. There was a horrible clanging sound and a sickening yelp, and she crumpled in a ball against the gate. The impact ricocheted her 20 feet back into the Burdette yard, and she landed with a thud and rolled several times. She lay panting, bleeding and frothing at the mouth. My chest was heaving, I could barely catch my breath. I could feel my pulse and my temples and my ears, but my fear turned quickly to pity for the dog. She was suffering and wouldn't need to be put down, and there would be no pleasant way to do it, and I sickened at the thought. I had grown up in the country. I had dispatched chickens and rabbits for the supper table. I had been around many times when my family had killed and butchered a hog, but somehow this was different. I felt responsible for the dog. If my actions had been different a few months before, she wouldn't be in this tragic state. To my surprise, the dog got up. Her back legs dropped out from under her a few times, but she headed toward the safety of the hole under the storage shed. I looked down at the gate. The U-latch was broken and the bottom of the gate was bent. I went inside to tell Granny what had happened. She was the first to notice that I had cut my hand on the gate and was bleeding. She went into full panic mode, asking me at least eight times if the dog had touched me or gotten saliva on me. She made me wash my hands with octagon soap, which burned, and then poured alcohol over the wound, which burned even more before she bandaged it. She launched into a tale of the horrors 
of the treatment after exposure to rabies. Her cousin had gone through it as a young woman. The shots were taken over a series in five days. They were given with enormous needles through the wall of the abdomen into the gut and were horrifically painful. She remembered her cousin's screams as her father and uncle held her down on the bed as the doctor administered the shots. Granny called all of her neighbors and with terror in her voice said, don't go outside, there's a mad dog, it almost got my grandson. Miss Mary, one of the neighbors, said she wasn't taking any chances. She was packing up and taking herself and her toy poodle Woodrow to her sister's for a week. <laughs> Granny even called Polly, the neighbor with whom she had a very contentious relationship, and that is when I knew how scared she was. Polly was only called in the event of fire or tornado. <laughs> I went back out to do my duty to the dog but she wasn't in the hole under Mrs. Burdett's storage shed. I looked for her everywhere for a long time, but could not find her. I came back in and in desperation called an emergency veterinary clinic in Montgomery and asked what I was to expect of the dog. They again told me how dangerous the dog was and that it sounded like she was going into the paralytic phase of the disease and could last no more than a week. I fixed the latch on the gate and mowed Granny's fenced-in backyard, but not the front, which looked like a hayfield that needed bailing. I would have to come the following weekend to mow it. Granny, Ruby, and Gladys Burdett and Polly would spend the next week imprisoned in their houses, driving to their mailboxes at the end of their driveway <laughs> to collect the mail from the car. The chocolate brown dog would never be seen again. That was 25 years ago. And since that day, any time a stray dog has crossed my path, I have endeavored to help if it has been within my power. As a result, I have a house of my own now that I share with a tolerant partner of 20 years and five dogs, <laughs> all of whom are rescues, one of which is a black lab with white feet that I picked up off the side of the road. Leonard Lee Smith is both a hairdresser and professional storyteller. He's also one of our story coaches here at Arc Stories. You can learn more about him at his website, llsmithstoryteller.com. Now, like Lee, our next storyteller finds himself under threat by a representative of the animal kingdom. However, his response couldn't be further from Lee's. And results in everlasting shame for his family. From an event we hosted back in August of last year with the theme of Lost in Translation, Stories of Misunderstanding, here's storyteller Jay Adams. So, uh, we're in Disney World, and I'm looking around for the easiest way to kill myself. <laughs> I should back up. It had not been a bad trip to Disney World. It had actually gone really well. We were doing the thing where you get up late and, or, or early and drive through the night because it's easier to travel while the kids are asleep. Except for the nine-year-old is now old enough to know what's going on, so she just never went to bed. Disney is meth, and she's this tiny tweaker just bouncing around the back of the car for 10 hours in a row. So that was rough. 
The second thing that went wrong was as we crossed into Florida, we stopped at Chick-fil-A for breakfast, and as my son and I entered the restroom, this guy turns from the urinal, and on his way out the door, he just kind of brushes me on the shoulder and says, I warmed it up for you, which, A, we're talking about a urinal, so you did something wrong, and B, I have no way to explain this to my son, who is six and wants to know, who is that man, Daddy? How do you know that man, Daddy? What did he warm up for you, Daddy? And all I know to tell Jack Tyler is, son, as you get older, you're going to learn in life that some people are just destined to say creepy things in public restrooms. <laughs> and every day I wake up and pray you won't become one of them. <laughs> Other than those two things, the trip to Disney was great. Got to the hotel, checked in, woke up the next day to tackle the park, which is where we began. We were in Disney World, and I was contemplating suicide. It's just the people. I, you're all wonderful people, but there are so many of you. And I don't understand how you coordinate your schedules to all go to Disney World at the same time as me every time. It's, if you've ever been in the grocery store, I don't know if you're really judgy about tomatoes like I am, but you go to put a tomato that you've deemed inadequate back into the crowded tomato box. When you put tomato A in, tomato B falls out the other side. And you catch tomato B and you put it in, and tomato C falls out the other side. And now you're stuck in this infinite vegetable loop. This is Disney World, but with people. Which is how they get away with what are, if you're very honest, extremely crappy rides. The only way you think it's a small world is a good time is if there's a literal apocalypse just outside the door. Which also explains why dads love lunch at Disney World. Outside of Disney World, dad is the guy that says we're getting no appetizers, everyone will drink water, and do not even ask me about dessert. <laughs> Inside the park, dad becomes just a profligate spender. Two appetizers for the table, everybody gets a Coke. Those have free refills, right? You can't kick us out as long as we drink them. Uh, and we're going to have, putting us $14 a cup, bring two for everyone. I will pay any sum of money if you'll just let me stay in here. So I was looking forward to lunch, is what I'm saying. And this lunch was going to be at the Crystal Restaurant on Main Street, where Tigger and Pooh uh, and uh, Piglet come to dance. I didn't care about any of that. I cared about the fact that this lunch was a buffet, so I was twice as excited as I would have ordinarily been for lunch. Which is why it was a huge bummer to learn that the two-year-old, Ellie Kate, was not okay with Piglet. Now, I see you have some experience with this. Uh, I know that the toddler afraid of characters is a trite and overused cliche, and I am not telling you a story tonight about a trite and overused cliche. I do not mean that Ellie was dismayed. I do not mean that Ellie was uncomfortable. I mean Ellie knew with 100% certainty that Piglet was going to pick up a Mickey Mouse butter knife and murder her in her seat. <laughs> she screamed like that girl at the bottom of the well in Silence of the Lambs. It was horrific. It was the kind of scene that forces you, for the good of the other patrons, to leave the restaurant if you are a decent human being or a responsible parent. But I am neither of those things. So I put as much bacon in my mouth as I could fit and said, I think she'll get over it. Ellie did not get over it. She screamed and she wailed. When wailing didn't work, she circled back around to try some more screaming. I don't know how familiar you are with Shakespeare. There's a scene in Macbeth. Macbeth has murdered Banquo, which is a real jerk move. And Banquo agrees with me that this is a jerk move. He decides to haunt Macbeth at his first official dinner as king. 
Only Macbeth can see Banquo. So everybody's having a perfectly nice royal dinner, and then Banquo appears, and Macbeth spits his food out, jumps up and starts screaming at the wall, flips the table over in fear. If you take that scene and replace Macbeth and Banquo with a toddler and a cartoonish pig, you have the most absurd moment of my vacation life. Everyone is eating happily, Ellie sees Piglet and goes into the Macbeth routine over and over again. The whole dinner, it did not stop at dinner. Before we left the restaurant, there's a, there's a moment that a parent and a child can share that's it's spiritual. It's communication at the level of the soul where no words have to be exchanged. You just catch your eye of your child and they catch your eye. It's a really tender moment where you can talk through that visual communication. And Ellie and I had that moment as she was screaming about Piglet. We locked eyes and she said to me with no words being exchanged because she was too when you are old and helpless, I will unplug your machines for this. <laughs> Is it really worth it? And with my eyes, I said, I have a piece of bacon in each fist. I'm going to roll these dice. <laughs> Outside the restaurant, in the, in the park, in the street, from a football field away, Ellie would see a character, Piglet, Pooh, Donald Duck, somebody inevitably surrounded by a sea of smiling, laughing children. And she would begin bucking in her stroller like she was the world's tiniest cowgirl atop the world's angriest bull, just spewing infant obscenity and raining down lightning on everyone in her head. It, it was something from Revelation. So we were relieved on the fourth day to go to the animal kingdom. Because a couple of things about the animal kingdom. First of all, they don't have nearly as many characters in the street, which is good because I was getting very tired of spending my time on vacation trying to dodge cartoon characters like I was a downed chopper pilot dodging Charlie on the way out of Vietnam. <laughs> the second thing is they have real animals, as the name animal kingdom would suggest. Um, which is an absurd sort of logic if you think about it. Uh, cartoon Piglet, from Ellie's perspective, is clearly a murderer. But a 400-pound lion that can eat her in a bite and would, with no remorse, is her best friend. <laughs> so we rode the safari and we went to the petting zoo. The petting zoo, they have baby deer, baby sheep, and baby goats. And Ellie finally has her Disney moment. These animals are her size and their heads are in the proper proportion with their body. So she's good with this. It's a big deal as a parent to finally give your kid that magic moment. And so we're sharing it. Ellie's having fun at Disney after four days of torment. We found a thing for my princess baby to enjoy, which is why she was really bummed out when the three baby goats she was petting decided this was the best of all possible times to inaugurate goat WrestleMania. <laughs> Imagine my daughter's universe sliding horribly awry in the most absurdly goat-oriented of fashions as they begin churning and kicking and butting and making that horrible sound all around her, which is a sound she's never heard before. This is new information for her. And she dawns slowly to the realization that she's been right all along and Disney is really trying to kill her. Piglet was a red herring. All along, the real danger has been the goats. 
She's so upset she can't even cry. I don't know if you know this about kids when they get so, the thing that's happening is so bad they can't even cry about it. They just do the fish gulp <gasps> as if their body has said, you're going to need oxygen for whatever's going to happen next, so get as much as you can. So this is the scene I'm in, right? The kid is, and the goats are, nah, nah, and I'm looking around trying to figure out what is going to happen in the middle of this goat tornado. The college kid that Disney World is paying to fix this situation for me is useless. This was not covered in his manual. It was also not covered in what to expect when you're expecting. There are no chapters on goats. But this guy doesn't know what to do. He's just going with, let's everybody step back. Let's give him a chance to calm down there. Just play in. Which is not helping anything. He is oblivious to the wailing human infant trapped in this maelstrom of goat anger. I have some anger of my own at this point. <laughs> Remember, while everybody else slept four days ago, I stayed up to get us here 10 hours through the night. Well, me and Macy. Uh, and we've been trapped in a hotel room for four days, and I love my family, but you take any family of five and put them in a hotel room, and it can turn into Lord of the Flies on you really quick. <laughs> and I'm still thinking about that guy in that bathroom at Chick-fil-A. I don't like how I handle that situation. <laughs> it didn't work out well for me. I can't eat in peace because every time I get a bite halfway to my mouth, Piglet comes around the corner, and Ellie goes back into the Macbeth routine. So I'm a little frustrated that this college kid who's being paid by me via Disney to fix this has not fixed it, so I decide to fix it myself. I strode into the goat tornado, which is where I punched a goat in the neck. <laughs> this is not a moment that I am proud of. This is not a moment that you should seek to replicate in your life. But it is the truth. I punched a little baby goat right in his little baby goaty neck. Which did solve the problem. He went running off to the corner, uh, muttering in goat something about this not being covered in the employee manual. And I, I picked up Ellie and I got her on my shoulder and she was sobbing. You know, she's, she's coming back to earth now, realizing it's over. And all of a sudden, college guy gets real proactive on me, and he suggests that perhaps for the good of my family and the good of the goats, that we should exit the petting zoo. I had some suggestions of my own for college boy at this point, but we are being recorded tonight, so we will not get into that. We will say simply that we had a goat-related dialogue. Which is when I, I had to go across the petting zoo to find my wife, Laura, and the other two children, and uh, tell her, we gotta, we gotta leave. She said, uh, why do we have to leave? And I said, well, you've been through a chain of events that really nobody could have foreseen or been prepared for. It was entirely possible that a situation happened that culminated in me punching a baby goat in the neck. And she wanted, that's not a sentence any wife is ever prepared for. Uh, so I, I had to explain, and she asked what I later understood to be a logical question, which was, why didn't you just pick Ellie up? before you punch the goat. And I said, you know, that's a really good point that you make there. However, in the heat of the moment and with all of the bleeding, it, I went with goat punch. But the part that you need to know is we have to leave the zoo now. Uh, so we exited the petting zoo. And I calmed down. I got settled from my paternal rage. And uh, I started to laugh a little bit as I realized, what a, number one, what a great story this was going to be one day. If you cannot leverage your child's trauma for the sake of a good story, I don't even know why you have kids. <laughs> but I, 
I thought about it more, and I thought there's a metaphor in there somewhere that Ellie spent three days surrounded by costume characters who wanted nothing more than to bring her joy and happiness and to see her smile, and she would have nothing to do with them. She perceived them as threats. But surrounded by actual animals, even little ones, that could and would apparently harm her with no remorse whatsoever, she let her guard down. And it just felt like there was something in there about politics or community or human nature. I don't know. And I don't want to stress it too far, and I don't want to overthink it, and I certainly don't want to think it for you, because there is no chance you should take advice from me. I am just an idiot who punched a goat. Thank you. Jay Adams is a freelance writer and a high school science teacher. You can check him out on Instagram or Twitter at The36Review. Now, if you enjoy stories of mankind's precarious encounters with nature, then you will absolutely love our next live event. So you should totally come. It's this Friday night, April 7th, at the Birmingham Botanical Gardens in Birmingham, Alabama. Our theme will be Roots, stories about the nature of the South. You can get more info and purchase your tickets at our website, arcstories.com. And that's our show for today. Thank you for listening to the Arc Stories podcast. I'm Chris Kinsley. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Chris Kinsley. Arc Stories is at all those places too, at Arc Stories. This podcast is produced by me and Arc Stories director Taylor Robinson. Preston Lovingood composed our theme. Special thanks to Eric Chapman from Symmetric Sound for his audio expertise, as well as to Aaron Moon, Betsy Lee, Audra Whaley, and Nate Dreger for making this episode possible. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. And be sure to visit us online at arcstories.com. There you can listen to other stories, you can stay up to date with all of our events, and you can even submit your own story to tell. After all, we are always asking, what's your story?